Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that may not be religious, but is always right. Today we have <laughs> Today we have Kellen, Bianca, Julia, and Zoe. And today, if you hadn't guessed, we are talking about the rise of the religious right. And when we say that, it's really shorthand for the white evangelical wing of the Republican Party. Um, we're talking about some of the factors that activated them as a political block, and also some of the main figures that led to and benefited from their participation in electoral politics in the United States. So you got that right, folks. This is a history episode. Woohoo! Yeah, I can feel the enthusiasm. Is this our first right history episode since you were a doctor? Yeah, I feel I, like yes, we're getting is. like this is like I don't know. We should be like paying for this. <laughs> People should be paying for this, and we'll that's, tell that's you a great how. Point. Is yeah. Patreon.com/slash <laughs> yeah. Just get that in early. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is premium content that is coming you. F- coming to you for free but really shouldn't be um so go to patreon uh but i guess we'll keep talking because we're here to create content so um yeah so just to talk a little bit about what religion and politics looked like before the rise of the religious right which sort of took place in roughly the 1970s the 60s 70s and 80s is sort of the the general time period we're going to be talking about today so Religion has always obviously influenced politics in the United States for better or for worse, frequently for worse. Um, you know, both abolitionists and fire eating Southern enslavers saw their causes as divinely ordained, you know, before and during the civil, uh, the civil war. Temperance movements are another example, which were grounded in a very specific Protestant ethic. Um, the Know Nothing Party, for another example, was organized in the mid-19th century around a specific anti-immigrant sentiment, and that was particularly an anti-Catholic immigrant sentiment. But um, white evangelicals as a specific group had limited success in crafting large-scale governmental policy, um, especially in the first half of the 20th century. And there is like one very notable exception to this, which was during the interwar period when Christian fundamentalists actually did come together and successfully organized in especially some southern states against the teaching of evolution in schools. Um, so you may remember learning about the famous Scopes trial in the 1920s, which pitted a biology teacher against the state of Tennessee. There was a whole bunch of stuff about monkeys, whether humans could possibly be evolved from them, that sort of thing. It was um, a big sort of uh, media event. Um, but for the most part, these sort of Christian fundamentalists, these evangelicals were not an activated organized force in electoral politics specifically um, before the sort of 1970s. And a few key things happened to change that. So one of them is the rise of an evangelical new media. So like Billy Graham was a big pioneer in this area. He had books, he had magazines, he had a radio show, he had a TV show later. And we're going to talk more about televangelism later in the episode. But I think it's really like hard to overstate the importance of this technology developing in such a way so as to allow religious and political figures to reach more people than ever before with their messaging. 
And then another thing that was really important was key shifts in American politics that threatened the interests of these conservative Christian fundamentalists, including the Cold War and the rise of communism abroad. A lot of this stuff is grounded in anti-communist ideology, um, as well as domestic moves towards the secularization of public schools, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, anti-war protests, and more. And we'll get into some of that stuff now. Um, but we should note that this will not be an exhaustive list. Um, we've talked a lot about um, the civil rights movement on this podcast. We've very recently talked about Stonewall, AIDS, and the rise of the gay rights movement. You should check out our Pride Month content for a lot of that. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot about feminism and communism. So you can go back to other episodes to learn more about that stuff. Today, we're going to try to talk about some of the things we haven't covered in as much depth before. So yeah, let's just kick it off and talk about some of the stuff that these uh, evangelicals were reacting to. Uh, so the first, I guess, section that we wanted to discuss was a Supreme Court case that was pretty significant called Angle versus Vitale. I remember learning about this case in like U.S. history class in high school. But as a recap, this is a Supreme Court case that was decided in 1962. And the background is um, basically what gave rise to this case was the New York State Board of Regents had at the time authorized beginning the school day in public schools in the state with a short non-denominational prayer. It was like voluntary, but it was led by the teachers, principal, other authority figures at the schools. And so after that, a group of parents whose kids attended those schools objected to the prayer and actually took the Board of Regents to court. Um, the president of the Board of Regents was William Vitale, hence the defendant's name in this case. And uh, someone named Angle, I think it just became, I think I read that he became the person whose name was on the other side because his name came first alphabetically in the list of parents. So that's how like the uh, case's name came to be. Awesome. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't really know anything else about him, but <laughs> he has a case named after it's him. It's good to remember that Angle is different than Angles. Yeah. Yeah, different. I angles. did first think it said angles, and I was like, wow, people must have been really oh mad about um, <laughs> private property in the state. Oh my God. <laughs> Frederick Angles' influence is <laughs> far extending. <laughs> um, no, but so for this case, uh, the parents argued that the prayer violated the establishment clause of the First Amendment. And in all of the um, times the case was brought to lower courts, like the state court, district court, the, those courts all ruled in favor of the Board of Regents. And they said that, no, the prayer did not violate the Establishment Clause, and so it could continue to happen. And so, of course, the parents appealed, and then it got taken to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that this prayer actually did violate the Establishment Clause, basically that said it violated the sort of wall that separated the church and state that sort of was like the foundation of the establishment clause of the first amendment. Um, but an important caveat to this decision was that the, uh, it didn't forbid prayer in school altogether. It simply forbade teachers and other school officials from taking the role of leading the prayer because they said that in their capacity as like a, like a, authority figure in the school, they cannot sort of put forth any sort of um, religious practice or advocate for any sort of religiosity. Um, and so the political effects of that case at the time, well, there were a lot of people who like vocally disagreed with that ruling. A lot of like 
I guess, like highly religious evangelical groups did uh, disagree with it, even though it was like, in my opinion, I guess in our opinion, it was like good and constitutionally sound. It also did a lot to mobilize conservative and highly religious people to become more politically active because they were like, oh, like the Supreme Court is like violating like our like right to like spread our religion forth or whatever. And in this case, and it's like ramifications gave rise to the moral majority, which we will go into later. Yeah, so another um, major case that riled up the religious right was Green versus Kennedy in 1970. And okay, so when I was looking into this, what was like funny slash interesting to me is that there were multiple articles being like, it wasn't Roe versus Wade or like abortion access that drove the religious right. It was actually segregation. And it's just like, why can't it be both? <laughs> like, yes, they are racist. Yes, they are also sexist. Also limited abortion access primarily affects women of color like affluent white women women can always access abortion so I was just like I don't know why we're like pitting these against each other like no they didn't hate women that much they just hated black people I was like okay great great um so anyway I'm going to talk about both of those cases um so Green versus Kennedy was in the years following Brown versus Board of Education which was when schools were beginning to integrate across the country this case essentially meant that segregated segregated schools would not get tax exemptions um a quote from it says, under the Internal Revenue Code, proper, sorry, properly construed racially discriminatory private schools were not entitled to the federal tax exemption provided for charitable educational institutions and persons making gifts to such schools are not entitled to the deductions provided in case of gifts to charitable educational institutions. So essentially Christian sec- secondary schools and colleges took this as a direct attack on their values because literally god forbid they have to either integrate or pay taxes yeah and this it's also worth noting just really quickly that this is happening at almost exactly the same time as the swan v charlotte mecklenburg board of ed case which was 1971 which also mandated busing as one way to um sort of forcefully desegregate um public schools so you're seeing a lot of the options for uh people specifically white people who don't want their kids going to school with non-white people disintegrating and so this is like a deeply destabilizing um moment in terms of court rulings for the way that public schooling had worked in the united states yes thank you i was when i was researching this i was like i really hope kellen adds on Um, so yeah, also want to talk a little bit about, um, Roe vs. Wade, which was another, um, major contributing factor. So today evangelicals are kind of like the backbone of the anti-abortion movement. And, um, people often think that that was always the case, but, um, prior to Roe vs. Wade, this was considered by evangelicals, like a primarily Catholic issue. And like, they didn't particularly have a stance about it. Um, So it wasn't until this became like a political hockey puck kind of between like the further right and um, even moderate conservatives and liberals that evangelicals kind of like got on board with being anti-abortion. So yeah, there were many Christian groups at the time, although they weren't necessarily banded together yet, that did vehemently oppose Roe versus Wade for similar reasons um, as the Equal Rights Amendment, which we'll get to but it was seen as a threat to family values if people were not forced to carry pregnancies that they didn't want to have. 
Um, spoiler alert, Roe did pass, you've probably heard of it, uh, which in part is what led the Republican Party under Reagan to really embrace anti-abortion as a trademark of the Republican Party. And since then, there's been just constant corroding of abortion access, both on state and federal levels, as we discussed thoroughly on the abortion access episode. So I won't get too into that. So the one behind uh, Roe versus Wade, Jane Roe, whose actual name is Norma McCorby. Um, I watched a documentary today on Hulu called um, AKA Jane Roe. And this is uh, Norma's like she calls it her deathbed confessional where she wanted to like talk about all of these things that she experienced. So her background, um, she was like a pretty poor working class woman. She worked um, cleaning people's homes. She struggled with addiction, was from a family where her mom struggled with addiction. So, and this became like a good poster child for the abortion movement because they needed someone who wasn't an affluent white woman because then people could just say, oh, she could just travel to another state. So it had to be someone who seemingly could not access abortion as it currently was. And so this was like, she had what they needed, but she was often left out of actually publicly speaking at events for um, pro-abortion rallies and actions due to her lack of education and perceived like, they didn't think she was eloquent enough. They wanted a poster child who was um, who was a more affluent white woman, who was like docile, very like traditionally feminine to kind of portray like, see these like sweet women just want their abortions. So um, painting this picture to show how she still felt very left out of like the liberal um, women's movement for abortion because she was often, even though they essentially like used her for the case. And um, following that, the religious groups saw her as a threat because she was going around and talking to people. And I mean, a huge figure for the abortion access movement. And so in the documentary specifically, um, one of the main dudes who's in it, who's from one of these Christian groups talks about how they decided that she had to like be dealt with um, in the sense that not that they were gonna kill her, um, <laughs> that they needed her to no longer be on that side. So what they did was kind of preyed on, and this is why I went into her background that she grew up poor and had always been poor, that um, they paid her uh, over the years, nearly half a million dollars, at least in the funds that were able to like be tracked mm. to be born again. They like gave her this baptism and had her join Operation Rescue, which is one of the largest anti-abortion groups. And um, they essentially kind of propped her up and like paraded her around the U.S. talking about how she realized that she is anti-abortion and abortion's bad and like had her say like very heinous things. And there's clips where you can see her like not necessarily wanting to say it, but then they'll be like, come on, Norma, come on. And kind of like very much coaching her through. So yeah, this end, the other major thing is um, this person, Connie, who was her like life partner. They were in a lesbian relationship. And once she was in this Christian group, they knew that she was a lesbian and that she still lived with Connie, but they made them at least promise that there were like no sexual relations. They were like just friends. Oh my God. Um, and the guy in the documentary is like, to my knowledge, they never had sex after that. And I was like, oh my ah. fucking God. Um, sure. sure <laughs> yeah. So just throwing that part in. But yeah, so the docu documentary essentially is her like deathbed confessional where she said that they were paying her off to do this. And then in the documentary, they show her clips saying that to the other people in it that were like various people that knew her at the time on both sides of this. And then them all kind of like reacting to it. 
And yeah, it was very interesting. One of the major guys from the like Christian group was saying like what we did was really unethical and like he like felt bad about the other guy was like we never did that it was just like there's literal proof that's what this documentary is about Uh, yikes so anyway yeah there's some background it's a really good documentary i got very into it today it is like pretty (laughs) lib but that's really all you can expect from a documentary on hulu about roe versus wade so i still would recommend it I just don't want people to be like, Zoe recommended it and it was for lips. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just know what you're getting into, but I would recommend. So the next thing that I want to talk about is the Equal Rights Amendment, which we talked about um, on the anti-trans bill episode and Kellen mentioned in the beginning of this episode that the religious right was really gaining momentum due to all of these other social movements at the time. And in 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment was stated to be ratified with bipartisan support um, like we know that bipartisan is a fake concept. The parties are literally the same, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> still, still notable that at the time, both the Democrats and Republicans were like, yeah, women's rights. Sounds great. Sure. <laughs> so if you don't know what the Equal Rights Amendment is, it basically says that it's illegal to discriminate based on someone's sex, um, which was the language at the time. So once the bill passed the Senate, it was set out to get ratified by the states and it needed 38 states in order to be enacted into law. However, there started to be major pushbacks from religious religious groups who thought it would, quote, diminish women's traditional roles, embolden the gay community, and lead to increased abortions. You love to and when see I, that. Literally, when I read this, I was like, I wish it had done those Hell things. Hell yeah. <laughs> so Julia's going to talk about more about her in a minute, but Phyllis Schlafly, Schlafly was... I refuse to say her name correctly (laughs) Um, because she was a major voice in speaking out against the ERA. And of course, having a woman who wanted to take on the feminist movement, as she put it, um, to rally behind really grew the religious right. Because what do Christian men and men in general love more than a misogynist woman who they can be like, we're just following her lead. Mm -hmm. So she flew around the country to rile up opposition groups to the Equal Rights Amendment. Sidebar, but one of the very funny things I found while researching this is that she said the ERA, quote, smelled of communism, which is just a (laughs) hilarious thing to say about a bill that was just like, women are people, maybe. (laughs) And she was like, that is communism, just so you know. Um, And this is, you know, this is the 70s. So we, we know the Red Scare that's happening around this time. So through her organizing around the country, several states began to take back their ratifications of the ERA. They were like, oh yeah, actually this woman made a good point. We're, yeah, we're going to take that one back. And this was primarily evangelical, Catholic, and Mormon groups that were banding together to stop the ERA from ruining the country as they saw it. And we'll get more into this later as well, but this fight around the ERA continued to when Reagan was running in the 1980 election and is a huge reason for why the Republicans repositioned the party to be specifically against the ERA, against abortion, against gay rights, and pretty much against anything that was like anti-family values as they saw it. Um, And ultimately the ERA died under Reagan's Reagan's presidency. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about Phyllis Schlafly um, and kind of like what the broader landscape of feminist organizing was like in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, Partly, I think it's important to talk about her because Schlafly was such a big part of 
the media and cultural opposition that built up against the ERA and eventually meant that it did not end up getting ratified. Um, and I also think it's instructive to look at her tactics because I think that they have a lot in common with currently existing right-wing gender organizing, um, particularly anti-trans organizing. Um, so one thing that's funny to note about Phyllis Schlafly or I don't know, not funny, but like terrible, is that she was kind of like inherently contradictory in the sense that she was very against women's liberation and like women being empowered to work and leave the home. But at the same time, she was this extremely independent person who flew around the country giving speeches to like all these big right wing and religious groups. Um, and, you know, she was, she did like, so she was a stay at home mom for some period of time, but also she had this whole career, which was like very much against what she was arguing for. Um, and one thing that I think is kind of funny is that she would often start her speeches by saying, I'd like to thank my husband, Fred, for letting me be here today. And then she would follow it up with, I love to say that because it irritates the women's libbers more than anything else I say. Um, and I think this really points to the contradiction in her image because her husband would like almost never be there. So this wasn't like, he wasn't involved in any obvious way. And like the statement would often get a laugh because it was like, clearly her husband was not that involved and this was just something she was saying. Um, today we might call it triggering the libs. Um, at the time she was like, I'm doing this to piss off the women's libbers. But um, she also organized groups of women who were stay at home parents, or at the time they often called themselves homemakers. Um, and she basically got a bunch of people to testify before Congress about how they didn't support the ERA. And a lot of this testimony was from women who, you know, didn't work outside of the home claiming that like most women don't support the ERA, but they're just good housewives who aren't going to come out here and do political activism. So even though the feminist movement like looks really big and loud, you actually should like be afraid of us and what's going to happen if you like take away something that housewives really like and support. Um, it seems really obviously backwards to me now to be like women don't even have enough rights to come and tell you about how we don't want to have more rights. So please don't give us any more rights. Um, but it was framed in kind of this sneaky way of like, we're like overcoming our sort of like stay at home, nice, quiet selves, because this is so important to us that we have to come out and tell you how much we oppose this and how much in their claim, most women actually really like being stay at home moms. Um, and of course, a lot of people, especially men, just didn't want women to have more rights. And they just kind of saw Schlafly as a convenient figure to support because like Zoe mentioned, she was a woman and she could sort of like serve this role of a woman who was saying these misogynist things. And then it was like, oh, it's not sexist because it's a woman saying it. Um, and I think especially wealthy white men who were the ones who at this time actually had wives at home who didn't have to work to survive. Um, and those men are really the ones who are benefiting the most from the existing status quo. Um, and we've talked about this on the show previously, especially in our reproductive healthcare related episodes, and maybe we'll get into it more in future episodes as well. But the mainstream feminist movement at this time was pretty focused on the concerns of like middle to upper class white women. Um, for example, a big cause at the time was fighting for women's equal rights in the workplace and the right to work where for a lot of like working class women of color, 
they just had to work and earn an income already. So employment discrimination was obviously still a problem, but it wasn't the same focus of like, I can't work because I have to stay at home and take care of the kids. It was more like, I have to go to work and earn a living and then also do all the housework and take care of the kids. Um, so it was like a slightly different perspective that like in reality, a lot of women did not have this experience um, that the religious right was sort of arguing was the only way for women to be. Yeah. I also just to jump in here, Julia, I think this what you're talking about super underlines like especially the whiteness of the religious right as it was organized. Like that these are their focuses. These are the women that they're championing. Like it's because it was an explicitly racist movement that all of this was possible. Anyway, just wanted to say that continue. This is great. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Yeah. I mean, basically I don't want to like derail too much into that, but I think it's worth noting when we look at where the primary opposition to the era was coming from, that it really was like, you know, basically the most powerful people in the US. It was mostly like these wealthy white business owning class of men, and unfortunately some women who felt that they were benefiting from this system. And so that's really who was supporting this. Um, And that fact also meant that Schlafly was very well funded. Um, The feminist movement suffered from a chronic lack of funds, like a lot of left-wing organizing, you know, it was a lot of activists giving their time to this cause and getting burnt out and not being able to continue. But Schlafly successfully kind of made a career out of this. Um, She sold a book that was very popular and she got funding from other right-wing groups as well as a lot of major businesses. Um, I was trying to find out like who exactly was funding her back in the 70s and I didn't find any specific information about that. Um, A lot of reporting at the time references her getting these like major business donations. So it was definitely something people were aware of at the time, but as far as like who specifically it was, I'm not sure. But one of the groups she founded, which is called the Eagle Forum, still exists today. And like their current donors, which you can see online, are predictably people like executives of like oil and real estate companies, like kind of the people that you might expect to be supporting something like this. Um, So I'm just going to assume it was basically the same people at the time as well. Um, And then in terms of Schlafly's rhetoric, which I wanted to talk a little bit about, she talked a lot about reverse discrimination. um, So like men being discriminated against. um, And also one of her popular talking points was like, comparing the ERA to like, if we were to give women two votes, because at one time women couldn't vote. Um, So essentially a lot of like, yes, women were mistreated at one time, but we're all equal now. And like, we just need to move on and we shouldn't be doing anything to actively combat gender discrimination um, because that would be unfair to men. And the women's liberation movement wasn't just about women's rights. It was also focused on healthcare rights, like publicly funded abortion and parenting rights, like publicly funded childcare. Um, And many activists in the movement were also pushing for broader rights for queer people, like not letting people be fired for being gay, which was something that happened a lot at the time. Um, And I mean, it still does happen today, but it's more clearly been decided that that's illegal and like, you're not supposed to do that. Um, At the time, this was just like, essentially in practice, it was fully legal. Um, And one fun fact is that Pennsylvania was the first state to ban discrimination against employees on the basis of sexuality, um, only for public sector workers, but shout out to Pennsylvania. Uh, That was in 1975. And then Wisconsin was the first state to ban discrimination for all employees, including in the private sector. And that wasn't until 1982. 
Um, wow, love that. Also, yeah, yeah just want to add with what you were saying with her rhetoric that um, she would say things that just were not true about the ERA. Like, oh, the ERA is going to lead to like uh, women having two belts, like whatever, like Julie was saying, like would just say these very untrue things. And people would write to her being like, hey, that's actually not what it means. This is what it means. And she would be like, oh, okay, thank you. And then just like keep saying it. Um, so I just think that's uh, worth noting that it's like kind of like yeah. people were like, oh, like legalizing gay marriage. What's next? Legalizing marrying an animal. Like she would just like say things like that. And people would be like, oh yeah, wow, that is bad. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think this is a big part of kind of like the... I don't know, like the post-truth era, like this was sort of when those types of talking points started. Um, and I was watching this interview with her where the interviewer keeps being like, um, like, I don't think that's true, sorry. And she just keeps being like, no, no, like this is my point. I'm just gonna keep saying this. Um, and obviously they still aired it, which is like, why would you air it if she's just blatantly lying? But <laughs> um, anyway, this is all mostly to say that like these fights around sexuality and birth control and childcare were all like actively being hashed out at this time. Um, and a lot of those things formed the basis of the religious rights interpretation of how things like should be in the traditional roles of men and women. Um, and Phyllis Schlafly's counter arguments to the proposals in the ERA and other feminist proposals were things like, we shouldn't have publicly funded childcare because that would take away a mother's right and responsibility for childcare, or we shouldn't allow gay people to be teachers because that takes away a parent's right to choose a moral teacher for their child. Um, sort of just like obviously nonsense, but I guess some people found it persuasive. Um, and she also did this thing that I think is so sneaky, which is that her husband was a lawyer and in the 70s, she also went to law school. So at the time she was like giving a lot of these talks, she was in law school. And then she would like say in these interviews, like, listen, I've done the stay at home parent thing and the working mom thing. And honestly, like being a lawyer kind of sucks. I would way rather be a lawyer's wife than a lawyer. And it's like, okay, that's all well and good. But like you had the financial stability to hire a nanny for your kids so you could go to school you have like the fame and political power to go get a good job as a lawyer if you want to. And most women at this time didn't have any of those advantages. So it's like for her to argue against broadening the very rights that allowed her to live her life the way she wanted to is just so evil to me. And just one like postscript that I wanted to end all of this with is that before Phyllis Schlafly died in 2016, she endorsed Trump for president, which led to this big like, split in the organization that she founded between like the Trump supporters and the never Trump conservatives, um, which, you know, it's just kind of funny that this still has like some degree of relevance this many years later. Um, back in the 70s, Gloria Steinem once said that Phyllis Schlafly was like in a way kind of a good enemy to have because you could always trust her to be on exactly the wrong side of any important issue, <laughs> um, which is like, <laughs> it was like, I don't know, like nuclear disarmament, like racism, feminism, like all of it. She was just on the wrong side. Um, and that really just remained true up until her death. So I guess at least she was consistent. But <laughs> that, that was Phyllis Schlafly. That's I feel so like funny. she maybe was the first girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's horrible, but yeah, I feel like you're right. 
That's girl so boss funny. culture started Original her. girl boss. <laughs> she also, like, I just saw this when I was researching today, because she really wanted to play into the being, like, a housewife. She would, like lobby congress members by like making everyone like a fresh loaf of bread and like go around like giving every politician like fresh baked goods and like oh my god yeah Yeah, i also read that she would like go she would like campaign at the grocery store so she'd be like walking around with her shopping cart like i'm just a mom doing my shopping (laughs) and then she'd be like here's a flyer for this event it's just like uh yeah infuriating (laughs) yeah horrifying um, on the subject of horrifying people, um, I think it would be good to talk about some of the other, like, major figures in this movement. Um, so one, like, big group of them that we sort of talked about are televangelists, um, which were some of the major religious leaders who made the rise of the religious right possible. Um, and these televangelists helped create a specific media subculture around right-wing, actively political Christianity. And so, I mean, there are a bunch of these people. To uh, There are just a few that I think like stand out as particularly relevant, um, who include Jim Baker, um, Pat Robertson, and Oral Roberts, uh, all of whom are laughable and terrible human beings. So... Um, Oral Roberts, for example, is a man whose name virtually guaranteed he would have some weird hangups about sex. Um, I was just going to say that's such a funny name for a super religious guy to have. Oh, no. Um, Yeah, he was like an early televangelist. He uh, founded a hyper-fundamentalist university in Oklahoma, which he actually also named after himself. Cool. Um, He started with radio in the 1940s, similar to Billy Graham, and later transitioned to television once that medium became more readily available. Um, Side note about Billy Graham, actually, while we're on the topic. So the Billy Graham, I've actually, it's going to be like the second out of like probably three times that I bring up Charlotte, North Carolina, where I grew up on this episode, because it's weirdly relevant to this stuff. Um, The Billy Graham Library is in Charlotte. And they used to have they or they still do have like a lot of advertisements in the Charlotte airport because it's like right by the airport. It's like a quote unquote tourist attraction, which like can't relate. But also what else are you going to do in Charlotte, I guess? Um, But there's this ad that I will never forget. And it's this it was this like black mother and a black son standing outside the library, like kind of looking out into the distance. And the text said, come just as you are. And the subtext was like, even if. The way you are is black. And I was just like, fuck you, Billy Graham. Anyway. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> it's just so bad. Um, uh, yeah. So to continue, Pat Robertson, um, he's another important guy that we could talk about. Uh, he started the Christian Broadcasting Network, which is like one of the major television channels that was doing this stuff in the 1960s. And that was used to send political propaganda, which was like cloaked in this evangelical evangelical garb um into millions of americans homes and like on again on this topic of televangelists i personally have a soft spot for jim baker who was on pat robertson's network for a period of time because he went to jail for opening a christian theme park right outside again charlotte north carolina and then using this christian theme park to launder money um and because it's incredible it's and like his wife was like also very into it and she was like she didn't go to jail i don't think and she was this big character around charlotte she would always have this like her hair like super done up on her head and like really like blue eyeshadow she was like a very aggressively made up woman who was like also clearly involved in this like money laundering scandal but like didn't end up going to jail um 
And when he was in jail, just as sort of a side note, Alan Dershowitz, um, (gasps) who was a, who is a Harvard law instructor, a sort of erstwhile (laughs) Twitter user, and famously an Epstein jet flyer, was Jim Baker's lawyer, um, and got him out on parole on the promise that he'd never do anything like that again. Anyway, (laughs) fast forward to 2020, the man is sued for selling supplements that he said would cure coronavirus. He's just, he's a king among scammers. We have to hand it to Jim Baker. All Um, I can imagine at a Christian theme park is like, it's a small world ride, but it's like reading you the Bible. (laughs) And you're just like in this little car. It's, I mean, I wish I knew more about it. I think it was also a water park, but like, don't quote me on that. I Um, need to know what people do there. There are more than... In one of these like christian themed like um uh theme parks there's a really famous picture of jerry falwell with his like arms crossed across his um, body going down a water slide in a suit to like raise awareness for this opening of a christian water park um and on that note we really like can't talk about the rise of the religious right without talking about jerry falwell who is arguably the most important religious figure in creating like this evangelical um, political uh, insurgency, as well as the so-called moral majority. Um, And we've talked about him a little bit in a recent episode, but like, I just wanted to go into a little bit more detail about him. So this is a terrible human being. He was pro-apartheid government of South Africa, um, partly because he's a racist, also partly because he was like, if the black people take over, they'll be communists. So again, we see the anti-communism coming in. Um, and again, also aggressive- again, we wish. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> aggressively racist. Um, he, uh, is also aggressively anti-Semitic. Um, but he is also pro the Israeli state's project of ethnic cleansing so congratulations to him on being on the wrong side of both of those issues uh he said that 9-11 was god's punishment for abortion and gay sex he's anti-union he famously once said that quote labor unions should study and read the bible instead of asking for more money um he's really islamophobic he called the prophet muhammad a terrorist Uh, And he's also one of the originators of the famous the Teletubbies are gay uh, conspiracy theories, which, oh, my God, again, we've talked about. So when Zoe's mother was putting (laughs) Tinky Winky uh, in the car, she was responding to Jerry Falwell. Um, Wow. I'm going to have to let her know. Yeah. Maybe Sherry knows. I don't know. I just remember (laughs) being a child and she was like, we need this in the car. People need to know. (laughs) Um, so Jerry Falwell, enemy of the pod, but also enemy of Zoe's mother. Um, so he had a like multimedia empire. Again, we're talking about somebody who's got like TV shows. He's got radio. He's got books and magazines. Um, he was also the founder famously of Liberty University, which is arguably one of the worst places I can imagine to go to college. Um, you, the honor code prohibits any kind of premarital sex. You can't even visit the somebody of the quote unquote opposite sex um, unless uh, like alone. Um, you can't drink or smoke. Um, starting in 2015, students were starting in 2015 allowed to watch R-rated movies and play M-rated video games. 
Wait, how would they even know? I don't know. I guess your roommate like tells on you. Um, uh, fair, yeah. Uh, you're also you're not allowed to use profane language. Um, and part of the honor code thing against premarital sex is that any kind of sex that's not like that includes gay sex. Um, so it's like a super homophobic place. It was like uh, you know a place that Trump went to give speeches and stuff. Um, it uh, really just horrifying, but was like part of the religious rights attempts to infiltrate um, higher education, as well as sort of what we talked about earlier, which was infiltrating the school system for younger Americans as well. Um, so Jerry Falwell also founded the Moral Majority, which was like an, a specific interest group that was sort of at the vanguard of this Christian right um, political system. Um, he did this alongside Republican Party operatives, including Paul Weyrich, who is the person that began the Heritage Foundation, whom Laura talked about on our recent episode on anti-trans bills. Um, and to quote Matthew Avery Sutton, who's a historian who specializes in the rise of the religious right, um, Falwell told Christians around the nation they had a threefold mission to get people saved, to get them baptized, and to get them registered to vote. So he got evangelical churches to run voter registration drives to get sort of these similarly minded churchgoers to show up to the polls. Obviously, there's this supposed separation between church and state. And um, Jerry Falwell really like found ways to push on that um, without in theory, constitutionally overstepping it. Um, but he was really sort of the puppet master, the architect behind getting um, these sort of disparate groups who were upset about the same sorts of things to come together in one political coalition and make themselves heard both through sort of advocacy, but also through showing up at the polls. Yeah, another thing I wanted to mention about the moral majority is just that the immediate incident that the group sort of came out of was a splintering of this other right-wing religious group called Christian Voice. Um, so in the late 1970s, one of the leaders of Christian Voice, which like had all these competing leaders at the time, went on the news and said that the religious right, his own movement, was a sham because behind the scenes, the other leaders of Christian Voice were Catholic and Jewish. So then the Catholic and Jewish leaders broke off and supported Falwell in creating this new group, which ironically went on to be pretty influential within like the evangelical religious right. Um, and I mostly just wanted to bring that up to point out that a lot of the leaders of the religious right weren't particularly personally committed to evangelical ideals. They just kind of either saw an opportunity to push sexist policies that they wanted to push for other reasons or to gain political power or both some combination of the two. Um, but yeah, like a lot of these people were not necessarily personally like I am an evangelical Christian even. They just sort of joined in on something that was having a lot of impact on the right at that time. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, to sort of like round this out, it's like, obviously it's impossible to talk about the rise of the white Christian religious right without talking about Ronald Reagan. Um, we have a whole episode where we go in on him. And if you're interested, it's called Season of the Bitch versus Ronald Reagan. Um, it's me and Zoe. It's just me and Kellen. It's just the <laughs> two of Kellen us. Me and Kellen versus Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, it's a, it's a banger for sure. Um, and even though we've talked about him before at length, I feel like he bears repeating or it bears repeating, um, as well here. Um, 
because his election really was a massive triumph for the religious right. It was the sort of peak moment for the moral majority as like a specific um, group, like a specific interest group. Um, And yeah. uh, So in terms of what Reagan was doing that made these people, you know, extremely happy. Um, he was active, as as we've hinted at, at trying to thwart the gains of the, the women's movement. He came out against abortion. He came out against the ERA. Um, as we've talked about most recently on our queer organizing episode, he allowed the AIDS crisis to rage pretty much uninhibited for several years um, because it was killing the people he and his supporters didn't care about. Reagan and his allies also aggressively worked to roll back the successes of the civil rights movement. And like, this is all, of course, to say nothing of his disastrous economic policies. And Reagan was also huge in restructuring the judiciary in an explicitly partisan way. And this is, it's no coincidence that we've been talking some about the Supreme Court um, this episode, because Supreme Court cases were important in sort of creating this religious right as a politically active group. Um, and they are also the Supreme Court is also and, and the rest of the judiciary is also really important in thinking about how the religious right has managed to achieve its goals um, over the last, you know, 40 years. Um, so obviously, anybody who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're aware, judges, institutions like the courts are inherently political. But a lot of Americans like to pretend that's not the case. Um, But Reagan, as well as many leaders in the religious right, correctly intuited that the way to go about ensuring that your policy achievements stay in place, and that your goals are also perpetuated through time is to stack the judiciary. So some conservatives were less than pleased with him assigning Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court. She was something of a moderate and also was the first woman justice, but they were absolutely thrilled when he made William Rehnquist the chief justice leader in his presidency. Um, Just to go off about Rehnquist for a hot second, he was an extremely conservative jurist. He opposed the majority in Roe v. Wade. He became a darling of the religious right for that reason. When he was a clerk before he joined the Supreme Court, he he argued in 1952, so two years before Brown v. Board of Ed, that Plessy v. Ferguson was, quote, right and should be affirmed. Um, And that is, of course, the Supreme Court case that um, ratified separate but equal as being a cool and chill thing to do. Um, Basically gave segregation the green light. He was like, hell yeah, I'm into it. As you can imagine, um, once he got on the Supreme Court, he was actively hostile to the civil rights movement, helped roll back many of its legislative gains when they came before the court. Um, pretty much any problematic opinion you can have, kind of like Jerry Falwell, this guy had it. Um, he thought you shouldn't really need a warrant for searches. Um, capital punishment is like cool, actually. <laughs> Women shouldn't serve on juries. Um, it's laughable. Uh he unfortunately lived to be about 300 years old and continued to vote on the court in just absolutely horrific ways, um, including in the Bush v. Gore case and beyond until he finally died in 2005. Yeah, also um, just wanted to note, which we talked about extensively on the Reagan episode about our girl Nancy, girl boss, maybe the second ever girl boss. Um, but I think it's especially important as as the opioid crisis and um, drug criminalization in general rages on and has gotten much worse under COVID. Um, 
there's currently like a national sort of shortage of Narcan, which is a big issue. But um, yeah, although this kind of the war on drugs started under Nixon, under Reagan, Ronald Reagan and Nancy, um, with Re Nancy as this poster child, like mother telling you not to do drugs, um, has had huge impact on like the legislation and criminalization around that too. Yeah, I think that's a really good segue into kind of our last section. Um, so I wanted to talk about just some of the lasting impacts of the moral majority era. Um, we've like hinted at some of this stuff throughout the episode, but um, I think like even though this was half a century ago at this point, we're still seeing a lot of impacts of the sheer force and amount of conservative organizing that was going on in the 70s. Um, We've mostly talked about sexist and homophobic policies in this episode because that was a major focus of these groups. But as we've mentioned, they were also extremely racist um, and, you know, just had all the bad opinions one could have. Um, but they also pushed for other conservative causes that are, I would say, maybe even more influential to conservative politics today. Um, so this includes organizing against criminal justice reform. Um, for example, Phyllis Schlafly was an outspoken opponent of the Supreme Court decision that ended the death penalty for minors, um, which to me seems at odds with family values, but I guess she didn't think it was. But go off, Phyllis, I guess. Um, oh my God. She sucks so much. Yeah, like I just think <laughs> if, if you if you think about like, like Zoe was talking about, like Reagan's role in the war on drugs and the really vicious policies that like hyper escalated mass incarceration during his time in office, like you can absolutely absolutely see the connection there yeah totally um and a lot of leaders of the religious right at this time also opposed pretty much any like international agreements between the u.s and other countries on the grounds that it was imposing foreign interests on u.s citizens um so for example they would oppose any international trade agreements and any international courts having authority over U.S. citizens, like if another country wanted to accuse a U.S. citizen of war crimes, they would be like, no, like you can't have that authority over us. Um, and while many conservative activists today obviously still do fight for gender essentialism in different ways, I think in a lot of ways, anti-immigrant organizing has become a more central part of right-wing movements. Um, and of course, in a lot of cases, these two things work together. Like I think a lot of like incel and men's rights activist types of spaces, racism and sexism are very closely ideologically intertwined. Um, and I think some early moves towards that type of thinking can definitely be seen in the racist and xenophobic undercurrents of these right-wing movements in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, also wild for uh, the people behind missionary work and a little thing called colonialization that you may have heard of to be like, oh, no, 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 we don't support any foreign policy or relations at all. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> um, and another thing I wanted to note is that like beyond a lot of the terrible policy goals that the religious right accomplished at the time, it also served as this kind of incubator for a lot of the worst political leaders and organizations that we're still dealing with today. Um, for example, people who were in Phyllis Schlafly's organization, the Eagle Forum, went on to become GOP leaders in major conservative organizing hubs like Texas. Um, and Christian Voice, the organization I mentioned earlier that kicked out the Catholic and Jewish leaders, was headquartered at the Heritage Foundation, which we've talked about before. It's a 
terrible conservative think tank. Um, and I mean, one recent thing that they're really known for is playing a really big role in selecting Trump's cabinet and other political appointments. Um, about 70 staff members there served in the Trump administration in some capacity. So there's this really direct line from people who were, you know, maybe lower level staffers in the 70s, then becoming these more significant political leaders um, in more recent times. Um, and a lot of the people involved with the moral majority and related groups also went on to further conservative politics in other ways. Um, one example is Mike Huckabee, who started out his political career as a staffer for a televangelist who was involved in founding the moral majority. And for any Zoomers listening who might not know who Mike Huckabee is, um, he was the governor of Arkansas and then ran for president in 2008, obviously lost the nomination to John McCain. Um, and then he was like a somewhat relevant conservative political commentator for a while. I feel like as I was writing this, I realized like no one really talks about him anymore, but like he sure was around for a while. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for thinking of explaining who Mike Huckabee is. It would not have even occurred to me. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just jealous that there are people out there whose lives haven't been touched by him in mm. the same way that I feel like millennials and like older generations have. Um, so again, Zoomers, if you were not familiar with Mike Huckabee, we're sorry for... Um, you know, taking away that part of your innocence. <laughs> yeah, so, so true. I was just like looking at this, I was like, okay, this actually was like a while ago. Like, I don't think he's done anything important since like 2009. Also the um, dad of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Trump's press secretary. So, so true. Unfortunately, Another terrible that. thing he's partly responsible yeah. for. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, I just wanted to call attention to something that I kind of hinted at earlier in talking about Phyllis Schlafly, and that's the connection between her tactics and current right-wing organizing around gender and sexuality. Um, so like I mentioned before, one of the key things in her rhetoric was like taking the language that feminists were using of rights and things that people were entitled to and sort of matching and warping that with her own claims, also using the framework of rights. Um, and I think that there's a pretty clear line from that type of rhetoric to things like the current free speech rights kind of stuff that we see from right-wing activists today. Um, and I think it's also really similar to the way that TERFs and other anti-trans activists frame their arguments. Um, like this idea of like, I just want the right to be a traditional woman and not have to ever see or think about feminists or women in the workplace has a pretty clear logical continuity with like, I just want the right to be a traditional woman and not have to ever see or think about trans people. And that's more important than trans people's literal right to exist. Um, it's this idea that like, it's claiming that your right to do what you want to do is more important than other people's rights to safety and bodily autonomy. Um, and of course, Phyllis Schlafly didn't say like, my right to not have a queer person teach my child is more important than queer people's right to make a living and literally survive. But that's kind of the underlying logic to her arguments. Um, like my right to be comfortable is more important than other people's right to live. And I do really think this is important because a lot of current people who maybe call themselves feminists but oppose queer or especially trans people's rights would probably claim to disagree with Schlafly's gender essentialist rhetoric of like, women need to stay in the home and not work and they need to raise the kids. Um, but their arguments are honestly very similar and I think rooted in the exact same logic. Um, 
I really don't understand what goes on in TERF's brains, but I feel like for anyone who's dealing with like a loved one, friend, family member who's starting to show signs of TERF brain worms, um, this might like- If you or someone you know is showing these signs or symptoms, please. Um, Act now, catch it early, that's the only way. I just feel like this is a potential avenue to kind of engage them on and challenge them on in that, like, this is the exact same logic that was used to restrict cis women's rights in the 70s. Um, Of course, it would be great if people just cared about trans people's rights without having to be like, this was also used to oppress cis women. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. So yeah, I just wanted to point that out because I think there is this kind of clear, like, things that we're seeing today in anti-trans organizing have, like, the seeds in this early organizing in the seventies. And I think that's like an important thing to be able to see. Yeah, for sure. And this concludes our (laughs) dive into the horrible um, things that were going on in the seventies and eighties. That was our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, As Zoe said at the beginning of the episode, uh, you can give us your money at (laughs) patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Another reminder. you will get access to episodes a day early and you'll have access to our discord and you will be able to join our reading group where we'll be discussing braiding sweetgrass this weekend which we're very excited for you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at season of the bee uh you can send us an email at season of the bee at gmail.com you can rate review and subscribe to our podcast on itunes and you can write us a review there, but like only five star reviews. <laughs> and um, please be nice to obviously. us. <laughs> yeah, we say this every week, but like we like really mean it. Um, and <laughs> and uh, we're also on Spotify. Yes. Cool. All right. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 the bitch.